Hello! I'm back again after another long mid-semester hiatus. For the last month, I've been attempting to recover from the awesomely fun but immensely exhausting Benjamin Bagby performance and movie marathon weekend, while also trying, mostly in vain, not to get further behind on my grading and schoolwork. On the positive side, I have also been enjoying my Anglo-Saxon class this semester tremendously. I have gained a whole new respect for the sophistication and intricacy of Old English poetry. No wonder Tolkien loved that stuff so much. Anyway, I'm back now with a new episode, and as usually happens when it has been a long time since my last post, I also have some announcements. My two main items today are updates on things I announced last time. First, just a reminder that I will be podcasting my new course in the spring semester. The course is called Fairy and Fantasy, and in it we will be looking at the fairy story tradition in the Middle Ages and its later descendants in the 19th century fairy tale collections and the modern fantasy genre. Throughout, we will be paying particular attention to the depiction of the magical otherworld of fairy and what happens to mortals who encounter it. Readings will include several Middle English romances, Sir Launfal, Sir Orfeo, The Wedding of Sir Gawain and Dame Ragnall, Chaucer's Wife of Bath's Tale, and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. We're going to be reading these romances in the original Middle English, which really ratchets up the awesomeness. We will then read a few selections from the Brothers Grimm and from Andrew Lang's fairy tale collections, and then we'll move on to 20th century fantasy, reading George MacDonald's Princess and the Goblin, Tolkien's Smith of Wooten Major, C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Peter Beagle's The Last Unicorn, and ending with Garth Nix's Sabriel. I will post on my website a full reading list and links to the required texts soon. That is, as soon as the semester is over, probably around Christmas time. The class sessions will start in late January. The second announcement concerns the Silmarillion reading group that I mentioned last time. I'm delighted to say that I have the software platform for the discussion group worked out now. I'm going to use Adobe Connect, and I'm pretty much set up and ready to go. Here's what's going to happen. I will post, this weekend I hope, a reading schedule working through the Silmarillion week by week. There will be a regular weekly time slot for our reading group. Wednesday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The participants will gather weekly, or roughly weekly, at that time, and we will have a live online audio discussion of that week's reading. I will record the discussion and post the recording weekly on the podcast. All I need now is participants. If you would like to take part in the live discussion, and you are reasonably confident that you can make the weekly time slot, that is, Wednesday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and also reasonably confident that you can keep up with the reading, let me know. Send me an email or a message on Facebook or Twitter, and I'll let you know how to log on. I'm afraid I may not be able to accommodate everyone, since the live discussion won't work with an infinite number of people, but we'll see what we can do. So get in touch if you're interested. Now, on to the actual podcast. I recently got the chance to sit down a second time with Tara Holsty, who is now making her third appearance on the podcast. Tara and I had been talking for a while about Tolkien's treatment of various systems of government in his books, and we finally got a chance to sit down and record a discussion on the subject. We started by reading selections from two of Tolkien's letters, in which he brings up some concepts and ideas that Tara and I wanted to talk about in relationship to Tolkien's stories. Tara read the first one. This is from a letter to Christopher Tolkien, his son, dated 29 November 1943. My political opinions lean more and more to anarchy, philosophically understood, meaning abolition of control, not whiskered men with bombs, or to unconstitutional monarchy. I would arrest anybody who uses the word state 
in any sense other than the inanimate realm of England and its inhabitants, a thing that has neither power, rights, nor mind, and after a chance of recantation, execute them if they remained obstinate. If we could give back to personal names, it would do a lot of good. Government is an abstract noun, meaning the art and process of governing, and it should be an offense to write it with a capital G, or so as to refer to people. If people were in the habit of referring to King George's Council, Winston and his gang, it would go a long way to clearing thought and reducing the frightful landslide in, into theocracy. Anyway, the proper study of man is anything but man, and the most improper job of man, even saints, who at any rate were at least unwilling to take it on, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and least of all those who seek the opportunity. And at least it is done only to a small group of men who know who their master is. The medievals were only too right in taking Noel Episcopari as the best reason a man could give to others for making him a bishop. Give me a king whose chief interest in life is stamps, railways, or racehorses, and who has the power to sack his vizier, or whatever you care to call him, if he does not like the cut of his trousers, and so on down the line. But of course, the fatal weakness of all that, after all, only the fatal weakness of all good natural things in a bad, corrupt, unnatural world, is that it works and has worked only when all the world is messing along in the same good, old, inefficient human way. Okay, and the second passage is uh, also from another letter to Christopher Tolkien. This is while Christopher Tolkien was training in and in camps with the Royal Air Force during World War II. Um, and the context of this second uh, passage, he's talking about Christopher's time um, <clears throat> in, the, uh, in the camps and how bad the conditions are in the camps. And he's sort of complaining about how exasperating it is that they spend so much money on the war and yet conditions for the soldiers are so bad. And he says, however it is, humans being what they are, quite inevitable. And the only cure, short of universal conversion, is not to have wars nor planning, nor organization, nor regimentation. Your service is, of course, as anybody with any intelligence and ears and eyes knows, a very bad one, living on the repute of a few gallant men, and you are probably in a particularly bad corner of it. But all big things, planned in a big way, feel like that to the toad under the harrow, though on a general view they do function and do their job. An ultimately evil job, for we are attempting to conquer Sauron with the ring, and we shall, it seems, succeed. But the penalty is, as you will know, to breed new Saurons, and slowly turn men and elves into orcs. Not that in real life things are as clear-cut as in a story, and we started out with a great many orcs on our side. Okay, so these are two passages that, that we've been thinking about and talking about in terms of uh, Tolkien's view of not sort of politics in general. Of course, I was I was about to say his view of government, in which I was going to use the word in exactly the way in which he says it he should be. Well, no, no, no. Use. I mean, no, because he says it, it, meaning the art and process of the governing. art and process so of governing. We can so talk yes, about yes. government as in that what sense the act of governing. It yeah, has. yeah, and I think first, probably the fairest thing to do to Tolkien, having just read those two passages from his letters, is to do a little bit of commentary on some of the things mm -hmm. that he's saying to kind of. Uh, hopefully, I think, clarify some of these concepts before saying. we then turn to The Lord of the Rings and sort of see how some of these things are represented in Tolkien's fiction. Um, he's clearly concerned... When he talks about government, again, government is an abstract noun, meaning the art and process of governing, and it should be a f an offense to write it with a capital G or so as to refer to people. There he's talking about the tendency that people have to, ju to, 
to generalize and talk about like, oh, the government is doing this. And I know we've talked about this before. I feel yes. sometimes frustrated on the college standpoint. You know, when I hear my colleagues complaining about the administration, the administration is trying to do this <laughs> and the administration is trying to do that. Um, I just had some students say that this morning. They said, well, what is the school doing? And I said, well, the school is, is not doing anything. It is a bunch <laughs> of buildings and it is sitting there where it's been for who knows how long. But right. but this specific person is doing this. And they said, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's a big difference. And that's where, you know, where Tolkien goes with it immediately. If he says if people were in the habit of referring to King George's council, Winston and his gang, it would go a long way to clearing thought. Yes. Right? That is, you know, when it's not government that does things government is the process of governing and it's done by people and so one of the things that he's really concerned with here seems to be basically two things one is that he's concerned with the perception and understanding of rule that people have you know when they sort of uh build what they call theocracy when i was reading the passage i think i said theocracy which is quite different from theocracy it is very, very different from <laughs> so we should clarify that point we're not talking about a theocracy right. but a theocracy right uh the they you know that's just like the the rule by those vague other people yeah so right? when you say well they did this well who's they you know who are these people that are are doing this to you and and as he says um you know who uses the word state with a capital s um to, to use it as anything other than, you know, the state as in, well, here's this place that we all are, a thing that has no power. Um, whereas we have a tendency, and we still do this more so, I'd guess, even than in Tolkien's time, of saying they have this power or the government has this power, but that's a, a completely abstract concept. It has no power. Right, um, right, right, exactly. And he is also concerned later in the passage that you read about the responsibility of the people ruling and yes. their own relationship with power and with domination. But here he's also concerned about the irresponsibility of the people governed that if you undertake what he calls the frightful landslide into theocracy, yeah. um, one of the things that you're doing is not yourself taking action, you know, that you are sort of being more passive than you should be. Yeah. And this is when, you know, when he talks about his political opinions leaning to anarchy He's thinking about basically that, not in the sense of having no order and, and no laws, but people taking responsibility for themselves. Yes. Um, and that's one of the things that you lose when you have the kind of centralized government that he's concerned about here. Well, and which is what you'd have, I don't, I don't want to call it necessarily, a more cultured anarchy, and I, I, I feel the, the need to jump in on that one just because I think modern readers are going to have a very different idea of what anarchy is right. than Tolkien would have had because at, at that point, anarchy was still more or less a political party. There were very intellectual, educated people who were considered themselves anarchists, and they would spend their time you know, having meetings and arguing about freedom of speech and that government should be you know, not this abstract thing, but taken into individual hands, and each individual should have the responsibility to make decisions for themselves. And that was more of the intellectual anarchy that he's referring to. Right. That's why it says not to, whisker to anarchy, <laughs> right? Which was philosophically kind of the, understood. With yeah, that. philosophically understood. Versus, you did have, I guess, what you would maybe call a popular anarchy that people had this idea in their heads, because especially in the U.S., there had been. Um, you know, years of incidents with, you know, people setting off bombs and um, the McKinley assassination was associated with anarchists and that sort of thing. Um, 
but not the way that we do, you know, today you say anarchy and you tend to think of like people in like punk rock where, you know, running around just breaking windows and that sort of right. thing. And, and right. that's not the right. sense we're talking Rioting about. Rioting and looting and yes. things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, exactly. But of course, as I said, there's, there's the other side of it too. So on the one hand, he is interested in, it seems he is interested in increasing the responsibility and the sense of responsibility of the individual, of the individual people. Um, but also he's concerned about the effects of this kind of power um, on the people who are ruling. Um, and I should probably explain, he, he uses the Latin phrase uh, from the medievals. He says, the medievals were only too right in taking nolo episcopari as the best reason a man could give to others for making him a bishop. Nolo episcopari means I don't want to be a bishop. So he's saying the best reason to have power is not wanting to have power. The last people you want to put in office are the people who really want to be in office. Um, and there his primary concern is the desire for power mm -hmm. itself, the desire to, to dominate people. When you have people um, who, who want to, as he says, boss other men, those are exactly the men that you don't want running things. Um, and that, that, so that's, that's the, sort of the chief point that he wants there, which is why he has that sort of whimsical sentence where he talks about like his ideal king would be a king who is much more interested in stamp collecting or or uh, you know any other <laughs> railways or racehorses, railways or racehorses uh, than, in, than in running in other words whatever we have some someone who is not obsessed with actual power and yeah. actual ruling that would be the far better ruler but it's interesting that he you know he says that he leans towards anarchy but the other thing that he notes um is about the monarchy. Yes, exactly. There are two things that he says or he leans to. Or to unconstitutional monarchy. Meaning, yes. I, I believe he's meaning a, a king or a ruler who, you know, just has the power, as he says, yes. to just make decisions without having to go through a bureaucracy, which is what you usually end up with when you have a constitution. Exactly. And I think that we can see, when we turn, as we will in a minute, uh, to the Lord of the Rings and looking at how some, you know, he's worked out some of these ideas in his books, um... I think that you can see both of those models yeah. working out. Obviously, one of the things, one of the primary, probably the primary political system that people think of when they think of the Lord of the Rings is monarchy, right? Mm -hmm. and these kings all over the place, the, but both the, the kings and rulers and leaders among the elves, as well as obviously Aragorn and Theoden. And so he says, Aragorn, Theoden, they have unconstitutional monarchies. That is, they are not run by the parliament. They don't have you know, gov a, a government with a capital G running them. Um, now, the other passage? 70, I believe. 78. Okay. Um, okay, so now just to, and to turn to the other passage for a minute to, uh, again, sort of emphasize the important things there, we can see similar kinds of ideas. He's not speaking quite so explicitly politically here. He's not talking about yes. government and how government functions. Um, here, it's sort of a little bit more broad, but the issues are kind of similar. Is that, so, you know, what he says is inevitable among, among human beings is that whenever you have is, you know, all big people, things... Really. Yeah, all big things planned in a big way, you know, create trouble. Um, you know, that the work that they do is ultimately an evil one. And so in here, you can see... Some of the some of his ideas here seem to be basically the underpinnings of his previous ideas. That the problem is not just that oh you know government has gone wrong because bad people have taken over government yep. and because the ruled you know the, the people who are ruled have become complacent in that. 
He suggests the problem is far more fundamental than that. The problem is like whenever people try to organize anything, <laughs> whether it be a, <laughs> on a large enough scale, right, on a large enough scale, then things get things muddled. Yes, get muddled <laughs> and go bad and and become corrupt. Yes, um, and that's where he compares. He talks about the war effort in part. We are attempting to conquer Sauron with the Ring. Though I'm not convinced he's just thinking of World War Two there. Um, you know that he's you know and and we shall we shall it seems succeed anytime you are basically trying to what's you know to to what he does planning organization regimentation whenever you're doing those things on a large scale to people yes you are entering into a mordor like Mind frame. Basically, to do that, even if you're trying to do that in a good cause, even if the end that you're trying to achieve is a good one, in the end, it's going to turn people into orcs. Yeah. And he seems to believe that that's a very general principle. And you can see how that feeds into the more specifically political ideas that he was articulating in the other way. Oh. Well, and of course, it all comes down to his belief that, you know, humans were just inevitably flawed <laughs> yes um and we're always going to no matter what organizational system you used you know going to mess things along as as he says at the end of the first passage that we read um you know the, the fatal weakness of all good natural things in a bad corrupt unnatural world you know this is that's because of the fall because of the christian belief that you know things were just the screw loose somewhere <laughs> you know things are inevitably going to fall into this kind of Mordorism. <laughs> right. And that's why he mentions in the second letter, he puts the parenthetical caveat about... <laughs> short of universal conversion. Short of universal conversion, exactly. That is, unless God intervenes and fundamentally changes people, mm-hmm. all people, um, then people are going to keep doing what they do and being what yes. they are, which is which is fundamentally corrupt and flawed in this way. Which is not to say that there aren't perhaps, you know, better ways to organize that will not lead to so much mortarism, which is maybe a good segue into... Yeah, exactly, because he clearly does show... One of the interesting things is that in some... You know, sometimes when you hear Tolkien talk like this in his letters, you get the sense that he's actually, as a person, quite pessimistic. Mm -hmm. Um, Which you you wouldn't necessarily guess in some ways from reading his fiction. That is, we don't get um, a lot of, you know, dystopia in Tolkien's fiction, we don't see a lot of like, oh, this is like society gone bad. I mean, we get the orcs, we get Mordor, yeah. we get these sort of exemplars. Saruman being in some ways an even more compelling example of sort of, you know, good impulses gone bad. But we get a lot of really positive examples. I mean, we get this, there's a lot of, in that sense, sort of fictional optimism yeah. um, in how he depicts things. So he gives us lots of good examples for how things maybe could work or perhaps should work. Um well, and, and, and as you kept saying when we were talking about this, not on the recording, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's always dangerous to just pull out passages from what are ultimately personal letters where he's just expressing frustrations to his son. Yeah. Um, and there, it's going to be a very different tone from what he's presenting to the rest of the world as, well, here, let's look at this. Let's maybe think about how this would work and we could try things this way versus... I'm kind of grouchy and I'm writing my son a letter about right. it. Well, and especially feeling grouchy when my son is off at war. At war. Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. And, and I'm hearing from him about how terrible are the conditions in the camps. And especially since, of course, Tolkien, as he was commenting earlier in that 
letter, remembers only too well how poor the conditions mm-hmm. were for him in World War One. And one of the things that he starts off that letter saying is that he's distressed to hear that it's still just as bad. You know, he had been hoping that, you know, 20 years later... There might be some improvement. Yeah, that maybe his son wouldn't have to be suffering all those things that he himself suffered and remembers suffering so well. So, so yes, he is feeling... Uh, very grouchy <laughs> for very understandable reasons. Yes. Um, so yeah, when he when he comes to imagine these things, you know, when he comes to sort of construct his secondary world, to you know, to build his subcreation, uh, what he puts in it, I think, very laudably, is not just his grouchiness, <laughs> uh, uh, expressions of his but his, his hopes but, yeah. for how something could work out, really, and and. To put it in context, I guess, the time that those letters were written, he would have been on the second half of The Return of the King. Well, he was, those are a little bit earlier. He would probably still have been in the middle of okay. things. Um, somewhere on The Return of the King, maybe. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere in there. Because I think the, the letters around there where he's talking about yeah. Faramir and that kind of thing. Yeah. So somewhere in that area. Yeah, he's, he's, I think, yeah, somewhere vaguely in, like, the Two Towers, beginning of the... Of course, he didn't write the books in exactly that order. He put yeah. off writing Book 4, for instance, um, and didn't get all the way through Book 5. That is the first half of The Return of the King before he went back to to, to Frodo and Sam, too. But anyway, um, yeah, he, so he is right in the middle of writing The Lord of the Rings and also to sending it to Christopher mm-hmm. um, while Christopher was in South Africa, which is where he was posted. Ironically, that was, of course, Tolkien's place of, yeah, the, the place of his birth and where he grew up as a little kid. But anyway, so it's one of the reasons why in these letters, like the language in the passage that I read, one of the things that he's doing is comparing the armies of the allies to the elves and men and the Germans to Sauron. But he tends to appeal to the language of his book a lot during this because it's in his head. I mean, it's what yeah. he's writing and what he's thinking about all the time. And what's more, what he's talking to Christopher about all the time. So especially his letters to Christopher are just chock full of this because they were both so immersed in it. He and Christopher, Christopher was his, you know, dedicated reader and, and typist and map drawer and, <laughs> and sounding board all the way through this period. It becomes like almost a private language that the two of them can use with each other. So, And that's very clear in his letters. Thinking about examples in the books then, you know, we can see a couple different models for the way that he imagines the governing of people <laughs> working. And of course, the first connection that people very often want to make very sensibly is to the Shire. You know, mm-hmm. the Shire is in some ways, to some extent, ideal. And it seems to be held as a kind of ideal at times. Now, I don't think I could possibly heap any more qualifying <laughs> words and phrases into that. Because, of course, I, I tend to think that that gets overdone. You know, yes. that people sort of assume, like, oh, you know, the Shire is perfect. It's like his vision of the English countryside as it should be. And there are problems with the Shire. And he's, there Absolutely. are you know, ways in which he's very critical of it, I think, especially with how sheltered it is. I mean, he sees the consequences. You know, I think of the comment that, Aragorn makes in the Council of Elrond when he's talking about how he's, you know, called Strider, how he's given insulting names. And he says, if simple people are kept free of cares, then simple they will be. You know, that, that's like, what can you expect? Mm-hmm. There's downside there. I mean, they yeah. don't understand what's going on. They don't appreciate either the goodness of what they have or the dangers that are around them. The depiction of the Shires in that way much more complicated. But anyway... Past those qualifications, <laughs> clearly in some ways, the government of the Shire um, works as, you know, like 
an anarchy of the kind that he seems to be describing, that he seems to be supporting. Um, we have a nominal ruler of the Shire in the mayor, um, but the mayor does almost nothing. At least Mayor Whitfoot does almost nothing. Yes, presides at parties, you know. Yeah, the presiding at banquets is the and you know there's that comment which sound which is a little bit of a joke. I mean, I don't think it's entirely serious, but when Will Whitfoot is set free of the lock holes um, and the scouring of the Shire. Um, he's not made mayor right away. Frodo is deputy mayor for a while. And the reason given is that he needs fattening up again. Like, he's not yet like, <laughs> ready to be seen at parties because, you know, he looks like he's just, you know, like he's been starved in prison. And when he's made mayor again, when Frodo steps down as deputy mayor and Will Whitfoot gets another term... His new term as mayor is described as, and he gets another seven years of presiding at banquets. You know, as, as if like that's literally all that he does <laughs> is you know make toasts basically, and that's that's the job of the highest elected official of the shire. Um, possibly shows you where their concerns lie. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. But clearly, I mean, so in that sense, the shire um, is an anarchy in the sense that it doesn't have and doesn't need a ruler. The individual. Citizens of the Shire look after their own affairs. They don't need somebody else regulating them. Um, they don't have a police force. You know, they have the sheriffs, but of course we see, uh, you know, when the sheriffs become an actual police force um, under first Lotho and then later Saruman, they you know, become something fundamentally unhobbit-like and yeah. unshire-like. And, and most of them are very uncomfortable with that position. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Though, of course, not all of them, right? As as he yes. says at the very end of the passage I read, you know, he admits that, of course, there are orcs on both sides. And yes. even in the Shire, Robin Smallborough says to Sam, even in the Shire, there's those as likes minding other people's business, yes. <laughs> right? And sort of guiltily confessing that there are some people who really well, enjoy being who, sheriffs. Yeah, they like bossing. And, oh, now I have this p- power that I didn't have before, and that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, uh, you can see that really wonderfully illustrated in the conflict between Frodo and the sheriff who tries to arrest him, marching <laughs> along. And I love that exchange that, you know, there's the gaffer who's laughing at them. No, who's arrested who, right? But the exchange that the sheriff has with Frodo when he says, now, don't forget, I've arrested you, because he seems, he's trying to as- vainly to assert his authority when yes. Frodo and Merry and Pippin are just absolutely ignoring his authority and treating him as if he has none, which in fact he doesn't. And so that's his last desperate attempt to reassert his authority, like, okay, I, I have no actual physical power to compel you to do what I want you to do or make you act as I want to make you act. Um, Fortunately, you're going along to Bag End anyway, so I don't have to try to drag you there. But but I want to make sure. Don't forget that I've arrested you. Don't lose sight of the fact that I actually have authority over you. And Frodo's response is, I won't. Never. But I may forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a wonderful response. Um, and of course, I mean, the way that he shifts that, uh, which is, I think is a really important shift, um, Frodo doesn't even say... You are claiming to have authority over me, and I don't recognize that authority. Instead, he puts it on a completely personal ground. Yes, I'm not going to forget that you have insulted me. I'm not going to forget that you are trying to harm me. The way that you are acting towards me is completely unacceptable. Your assertion of authority is not only unjustifiable from a from the standpoint of Shire politics, but but it's also a personally offensive one but I'm going to try to forgive you (laughs) for asserting that authority over me in the first place. And that's a really, I think a really positive expression of, again, anarchy in this sense that Tolkien is describing anarchy. 
Well, and the thing that I was thinking as I was rereading the scouring of the Shire this morning was when they're going along and there are these sheriffs and clearly they have no power over, you know, Mary and Pippin and Sam who are all armored and just come from, you know, the fields of Pelennor and, you know, seen great battles and this sort of thing, is that to go back to that concept of government as an abstract, like these sheriffs, these new sheriffs, are running around having power over people because of an abstract concept. They're saying, oh, well, now we've got these rules, you know, and the rules dictate this, and, you know, our new, they don't call it a government, but whatever, you know, they would have called it, our new order, yeah, perhaps, causes people to feel cowed, feel like, you know, they have to follow these rules, they have to do this, even though the sheriffs themselves obviously could be overpowered in about 10 seconds with the right show of force. So they have no real power, it's just that, when the other hobbits in the Shire start thinking, well, there's nothing, it's a they. You know, oh, yes. those people, they yes. say that a lot. Those people up at, at Bag End keep doing yes. this. And yes. without realizing that, oh, it's just a couple random, you know, ruffians or whatever that we could clearly overpower quickly. And it right. takes somebody coming in, Mary and Pippin, coming in and saying, uh, guys, really, there are more of you than there are of them. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we can set this to rights in a night, you know. Yeah, that that wonderful expression. The whole countryside is alive with our folk. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, exactly. I think that the state of the Shire right before the scouring is a perfect illustration, exactly as you say, of what Tolkien is describing as that slide into theocracy. Mm-hmm. Right. The problem is both equally with the sort of the corruption of Lotho's own perspective that he his desire to boss other people and to be called chief yes is a problem, and that was bad, but. Also bad, and actually a bigger part of the problem, <laughs> is the way that everybody else just goes along with it. Remember the phrase that they use all the time, which really bothers Sam and the rest of them, is not allowed. We're not allowed to, right? And they keep saying, We're, what are you talking about? <laughs> Who is not allowing you to do what? Like, nobody actually can tell you what yes. to do. And Sam says, if I hear not allowed much oftener, I'm going to get angry, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, and it's such... It's so tempting to connect this to modern times, and I'm trying to resist. (laughs) But it's just so funny that, you know, they come in, and the rules are things like you can't start a fire, and you can't, you know, share more food than than is allotted and this kind of thing. And then Sam comes in, and, you know, practical, common-sense Sam is going, but didn't you have a good harvest? The fields look great. What happened? Where'd all the food go? And, you know, it's just contrary to Hobbit thinking to... Have plenty and not see that, not be allowed to share it, not for people not to be able to take what is due to themselves. Which, of course, the reason for that is that they're shipping things off. And what government always, government in, in the act of governing and that kind of thing really comes down to is whether or not you're having that truck with the outside world. Like when, um, you know, when the Shire is the Shire and they have no interest in what's going on outside of them, then an anarchy works very nicely because what need do you have for government? People can manage their own affairs. If there's disputes, then, you know, the sheriffs will come along, knock a couple heads, whatever, you know. I think one of their jobs was, what, to cart the, the drunk people off the field at the end of the night or well, there were they didn't, they didn't say, it was actually it seemed to be just sort of like labor. There were people hired for that purpose, okay. people who came with wheelbarrows to, 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 to haul away the drunk people. Yeah. Um, so they, they generally manage their yeah. own affairs. You know, they, they don't need somebody to come in and, you know, lock people away or to gather all the food and redistribute it and that kind of thing. 
And the, the minute that that happens is the same minute that Lotho started sneakily shipping first leaf and then probably some grain and things like that, commodity items, right. out of the Shire. And therefore, there was not enough left in the Shire for the people that actually lived there. And so that, yes, then you need a government to manage these things. And that's why you end up with bureaucracies. I mean, the, the basis of bureaucracy is figuring out how to distribute things, you know, by first gathering them all up, counting them all up, you know, keeping records and that sort of thing, and then redistributing them. That's how right. any bureaucracy functions. That's how modern bureaucracies essentially function. Right, and that's exactly the language that Tolkien appeals to when describing the system that Lotho has set up, the gatherers and sharers. Exactly. Right? Once you have you have a good harvest, um, you know, and again, as Robin tells Sam, we grows a lot of food, but we don't know what becomes of it, <laughs> right? Because they're not in charge of it anymore. Mm -hmm. It's being taken away uh, for fair distribution, right? Um, but it's not being, and I think... Fair. Sort of, exactly. <laughs> Quote fingers. <laughs> exactly, which is exactly the heavy irony of that phrase is very clear. The opposite image, I sort of come back to this image um, at the beginning of the Grey Havens, that is after the Shire, has been restored. This one visual image that we get of hobbits and food or even hobbits and the product it's of their agriculture nice. yeah the strawberries and cream though actually the plums and plum pits was specifically what i was thinking that is uh, the fruit was so plentiful that young hobbits very nearly bathed in strawberries and cream and later they sat on the lawns under the plum trees and ate until they made piles of stones like small pyramids or the heaped skulls of a conqueror and then moved on so the image is not a food being gathered and sent around the image is of a hobbit child walking up to a tree that has fruit on it, sitting under that tree and eating the fruit and then walking away and doing something else. That's that sort of the image that he chooses to illustrate the happiness and plenty of the spring, summer, and harvest of 1420. I just keep thinking you'd get really bad stomach aches if you were eating that many plums. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that, that's not the point, obviously. No. But that, that's what keeps crossing my mind. Right. Right. One could also say you would get very sticky if you bathed in strawberries and cream. But This is true. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it really helps to point to what he means by anarchy and what the Shire society looks like when everybody is governing themselves. It also means that everybody, everybody in the area does get plenty. In fact, fair distribution is when you don't have the bureaucracy, when you, you don't have them coming in to take away yes. your crop and then distribute it fairly. And that seems to be a fundamental part of what is being illustrated there in the scouring of the Shire. So it would have been, I'm, I'm just trying to think historically as far as England goes, it would have been a very long, long time since you had anything like that in England. Mm -hmm. You know, with people always saying like, oh, the Shire is like pastoral England. But I mean, even going back to when you still had a, a unconstitutional monarchy in England, you had, you know, the feudal system. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Which would have been like little feudal lords and that sort of thing and who were coming around and, and gathering. Yes. You know, what yes. was grown on their fields and that sort of thing. Yeah. Though so even that was the difference that I was like, the difference between the position of a farmer of a in in the feudal system and the system described, say, under Lotho and Saruman in the Shire is that there would have been a designated amount that is, you would have been obligated as a farmer to give X number of eggs yes. and chickens. As and opposed to giving to, all of it. And then right, and then have it redistributed yes. to Which you. Which is yes, a much exactly. more um, socialist system. Right. And it would basically be, I mean, of course, you know, this is not to say that, like, and I'm not trying to just give a blanket defense of the, of the feudal system. And goodness knows, often the required 
amounts that they were supposed to give to their lord were so high that they didn't have you know Enough much or anything themselves. left for themselves. But nevertheless, it's it's not that same idea of we will take your whole crop and then we will decide what is fair and you can go and apply for like the food that you need for your family. That's not even feudal. So yes, in some ways, that's not. The system in the Shire, as you say, is not like a, th- a throwback to the good old days of Tolkien's youth. Tolkien was born in 1892. I mean, this yeah. is that's well post-industrial industrial revolution. <laughs> I mean, it's you know, so we're not talking about you know him trying to recapture something that he remembers there because yeah. he doesn't remember that. This is rather, as he describes in that letter, a reaction against what he's seeing in mm-hmm. the world around him. I would sort of hear stress the very first phrase of that letter, the one that you read, Tara, my political opinions lean more and more to anarchy or to unconstitutional monarchy. That is, this is something that's growing over time. Post-World War I into World War II, the more time goes on, the more he begins to think this. This is not like an idea that he has retained from childhood. This is a reaction against yes. where he sees things going. And I think that the Shire is designed in that way, not as a look backwards, nor could you call it exactly a look forwards, but sideways. <laughs> sort of <laughs> unimagined alternative to the, the world that he sees and the direction that he sees the world going. I'm thinking about the sideways. Well, in, in the sense that I guess um, you wouldn't look at the Shire as a look forward because ultimately you, you wouldn't have the same with the world of men, insular, you know, kind of community that would allow people to really just, you know, manage their own affairs and that right. sort of thing. When it comes right. to the world of men, suddenly, just within the context of the Lord of the Rings, there are different groups of men, they're, you know, governed differently, they have different cultures, that kind of thing, and so it becomes somewhat necessary to have somebody who is putting their foot down <laughs> right. between those different groups. Right, and that's why... And that's where you get the unconstitutional monarchy aspect. Right, right. Every larger culture, larger than the Shire, which is almost every other culture, almost every other culture, not quite every other culture. We do get some other smaller and insulated cultures, though often we don't see much of them. For I'm instance, thinking of the dwarves. Yeah, I was thinking but, of the wild men of the woods. Oh, them too, um, yes. They're very insular in that they're just like within that one forest. Yes. Though they do seem to have a leader. Khan Buri Khan is uh, a hard name to say, but also yes. he's great headman, right? Yes. I mean, he is clearly the but leader. Maybe in the same sense that like the Thane is a leader of the Tooks. Like, you know, right. the, they look to him like, well, we have a decision to make. What do you think? Because you're you're wise and older and have experience. What, what do you think kind of thing? A little more military in the case of the wild men of the woods. Right. Right. And the, the dwarves do have kings. Yes, yes. I was um, thinking they're more insular, but they do have kings. Mm-hmm. I guess because they have different groups of them, and so somebody has to do negotiating between different groups. And the dwarves, it is true that the dwarves were always, they're, they're insular in one sense, in that they keep to themselves and they're secretive, but from the earliest, earliest stories that we know of the dwarves, they're trading with outside. Yes, they're always yes. trading. They're always they're Which always the interacting. And whereas this, the hobbits are that's their downfall is when they start trading with right. the outside. Exactly. Exactly. So whether it's trade or also just learning too. I mean they they're reluctant to teach but they're eager to learn from the elves in the Silmarillion and there you know there's that comment in the Silmarillion that they really they really take to writing. When writing is invented the elves don't think much of it but the dwarves love it and they they learn it and take it and adapt it themselves. So both economic trade, but also learning, they are eager to exchange. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I said exchange, not exchange. 
to get from <laughs> other people. They're not quite so willing to teach. Uh, but thinking about, as you were saying about sort of the leadership of other cultures, I think a, one moment, which is a, a really interesting illustration of this impulse that is away from bureaucracy and towards not philosophical anarchy, but towards unconstitutional monarchy is the movement that we see in Lake Town in The Hobbit after Smaug destroys the town and everyone is upset with the master because when push came to shove, they had an elected official who was responsible chiefly responsible for and interested chiefly in trade. You know, he was a merchant and head of the merchants and he was the one who ran the town. But when push came to shove and a dragon was attacking, he was no good. They needed at that time a leader and they didn't have a leader. He tried to skulk off in his boat way before most other people even, certainly before people stopped fighting. And of course, whom they want, whom they whom they hold as the obvious counterpoint to the mayor in that case is Bard, who mm-hmm. actually stood to the last and killed the dragon. The way that they articulate that is really interesting. We will have King Bard. We have had enough of the old men and the money counters. Up the bowmen, down with money bags. All right, you know, and that's a pretty clear articulation yes. of where those values lie there. Yeah. And it's certainly true that all of the good, larger societies, those which are not just completely inward-focused, like the hobbits, they have a leader. Mm -hmm. And I keep using that term because I think that that's the thing that I think is behind when Tolkien talks about unconstitutional monarchy. A constitutional monarch can't be a leader. doesn't have actual power. It doesn't have actual independent power. No, because he's got checks on him which is the point of writing a constitution. Right, exactly. Thereby creating or at least opening the door Some to kind of, bureaucracy and yeah. theocracy, right? over which you know the king becomes a mere figurehead. But leadership is what Tolkien clearly values in the kings and leaders. Bard becomes king. Now, of course, it turns out that he is, fortunately, a descendant of Girion, Lord of Dale. <laughs> but he is a leader, and it is his leadership and his valor that people appreciate, and certainly it's what they're emphasizing in that moment. They're probably less convenient, in the sense that, you know, Tolkien would have argued that, you know, because he's a descendant of the past leader, it gave him the, yeah. he wouldn't say genetic structure, but the, oh, what's the word that he uses? Stature? Stature. Yes. Yes, to yeah. stand up and be the one to kill the dragon. Yeah, no, it's clearly not a coincidence. <laughs> that it is the descendant of Girion who ends up standing against the dragon. And not only for the reasons that it is just, it is fitting that one of the two, that the leaders of one of the two societies that Smaug came and destroyed is the one that finally overcomes him in the end. Thorin fails, or really fails even to attempt uh, to destroy the dragon, but Bard, descendant of Girion, succeeds. The emphasis of sort of king as leader is very clear. I mean, even passing glances, certainly at Rohan and Gondor, shows that really clearly. I mean, Theoden, goodness, the difference between Theoden sitting weakly on the throne and having other people do the fighting and stuff, and Theoden riding forth to war. There you get the moment, which I've talked about before, because it's such a favorite moment of mine, when Theoden is with Aemir and Gandalf, and they're riding out to Helm's Deep, and they meet the messenger, Keorl, who comes back, and he is asking for Aemir because he's assuming that Aemir is leading the army. He has absolutely no suspicion that Theoden could possibly be there. And his message is, tell Aemir to retreat. You know, there's no hope. And then 
Theoden steps forward and says, I am here, Kaoral. And, <laughs> you know, and Carol gets down on one knee and says, Command me, Lord. And then he says, You know, the last host of the Aorlingas has ridden forth and will not return without battle. And Carol is immediately, you know, does not give that message anymore. Now his message is totally different. Now he's like, Okay, let's go. You know, now, <laughs> now we're good. That's leadership. leadership. That's like the kind of leadership that a society needs in order to survive in times yes. of crisis like that. Well, and the same to go back to the Shire, where you needed Mary to come in and, and organize everybody. Yes. The, the Shire previously had had no dealings with you know the outside world and therefore had no need of a leader to come in and make decisions like, okay, guys, we're going to rally at this point, we're going to put up barricades, da-da-da-da-da. But, you know, how convenient that here comes Mary, you know, who has that kind of training because he's been in the outside world and has the stature now, having been in the outside world, to stand up and become a leader of that variety. It's exactly what Farmer Cotton says, right? Seems almost too easy after all, doesn't it? But we needed a spark, right? And and they were were the ones who provided the spark. And they were, you think even of the the prominent place that Mary and Pippin are given on the role of, uh, you know, the the role which Shire historians memorize of the people who fought at the Battle of Bywater. And at the head of every list is always Mary and Pippin. They were the leaders, right? Mm -hmm. They were the ones who did that. And I think the really interesting thing about Shire governance in that way is that, you know, we've been talking about it like it's, you know, an illustration of anarchy working well, and it is. But the coolest thing about the Shire is they have their cake and eat it too. They're both they are both an anarchy and an unconstitutional monarchy because there's also the Thane, right? I mean, they've got there is a Thane of the Shire whose authority would technically, if both of them tried to assert it, be in conflict with each other. But it never is because they don't. The, there is a hereditary Thane of the Shire who is the head of the Took family, Peregrine's dad, right? Yeah. And remember, that was Peregrine's father's objection when Lothar... That's why the Tooks have been in rebellion against... Lotho and, and the gang from the beginning is, you know, his comment, the one that Farmer Cotton reports to, to Pippin, says, you know, your dad, he's never had much truck with this Lotho. <laughs> he says, if anyone's going to play the chief at this time of day, it's going to be the right thane of the Shire and not some upstart. So basically he's saying, okay, no, 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 there's no void here, right? There is a thane. He doesn't boss, you know, so in some ways... He doesn't need to boss, right, really. he doesn't need to boss. But if he did for some reason, then, you know, he's there. As he did, for instance, in the time of Bullroarer Took, right? Yes. When the goblins invaded in, like, the only other previously recorded battle, the Battle of Greenfields in the Shire, then there was a leader. And the Took, the Thane, stepped forward and led people into battle and killed the goblin king on the field of battle. And, mm-hmm. and But since then, there's been no need for leadership. But there is one sort of waiting in the wings and still passing down the title. You have this benevolent anarchy in the Shire in which there's still a family who names, you know, their sons Isengrim the third. You know, they still have people, a family with Roman numerals after their name because they have a hereditary leader system. It's just sort of fascinating to see in the reaction to the scouring of the Shire, in the scouring itself, in the travelers coming back and setting things to rights, the remarkable kind of union that he creates between the anarchical system and the monarchical system. You have... The right leaders of the Shire, Mary and Pippin, the heirs to their great houses, leading the charge. But then, of course, you have the common people just sort of rising up, taking responsibility for, you know, themselves and their own land and their and their own governance and, and overthrowing the oppressor and going back to the anarchical system. So it's it's really fascinating the way that he kind of does both there. 
One of, well, there are two thoughts. One thought is, so why didn't the Thane lead the charge against Lotho, like, well before Saruman even showed up? Like, he definitely was kicking them out of Tookland. I mean, they, they were keeping the ruffians out and the men out and that sort of thing. But I, I'm wondering why he didn't come out and say, hey, hobbits, let's, you know, kick Lotho out now that he's started all these rules and all this kind of nonsense. Yeah, it is very interesting because on the one hand, we do get... I mean, remember what Farmer Cotton goes beyond simply saying that Pippin's dad Paladin has defied Lotho, which he does defy him. Yeah. You know, it's, if they go into Tookland, the Tooks hunt them. Right? Yeah, and they killed a <laughs> they couple They killed them, them, yeah, they shoot them. So they are, in fact, already engaging in armed resistance against the ruffians, but what they don't do is leadership. Yeah. And although we don't get an explicit condemnation of Pippin's dad. I mean, we're never, nobody ever says or even implies, I think, like, oh man, like, where was your dad, Pippin, when all of this <laughs> was going on? We don't get that note struck. But there does seem to be a kind of implicit, Pippin is doing it right. Yeah. Pippin immediately runs back over to the Tookland, goes to his, and comes back with an army of Tooks. An army of Tooks sort of should have invaded and taken Bag End a while back. Um, but even they needed a spark too. So it's like the Tooks. Um, they don't, they don't have any truck with Lotho as Farmer, yeah. uh, as I almost called him Farmer Maggot, as Farmer Cotton says, <laughs> both of them actually are good examples of like the anarchical patriarch, <laughs> you know, yeah. like the guys who are, who are, who are in charge of their own, uh, in charge of their own lands and, and, and running their own thing. But anyway, um, they, so they, they don't submit, but there's a, a sense in which they too, in kind of a bigger picture sense, still fall prey to like theocracy. They don't go around saying like, "Oh, I'm not allowed to." Right? They refuse to be prevented from running things themselves, but they do submit to the rest of the Shire. And you'd think that the statement which Paladin is said to have made, if anyone is going to play chief of the Shire at this time of day, it'll be the right thing of which the Shire. Which you would think would have led him to go overthrow right. Lotho, but. Right. I guess we could presume that they've fallen prey to the same kind of placidity that right. the rest of the Shire had, that there hadn't been threats in however many, what, a hundred plus right. years or, you know, since the Goblin invasion. And so everybody was just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, we don't like this, but we're not really sure what to do about it. And it's it's complacency in a lot of ways. Right. And, and on the Took side, though, you get this bizarrely militant placidity, right? I mean, yeah. they, they, they are taking up arms, so it's not that they're just submitting at all, but they're not proactive. And in some ways you could say, okay, one could say this is a good thing in Paladin. Because he says, if anyone is going to play the chief at this time of day, it's the right thing of the Shire. So in not overthrowing Lotho, one of the things he's doing, you could say, is saying, Nolo Episcopari, right? I, I, I don't want to play the chief at yes. this time of day. If anyone's going to, it should be me. But, but I don't I'm not going to assert rule over the Shire. I'm not going to lead an unarmed yes. invasion to try to take over the rest of the Shire because that's. I'm just going to stay on my lands. Yeah. And you know, you are not going to tell me what to do on my lands. So the only ones in the Shire who say you are not going to tell me what to do on my lands. But I'm not going to try to invade either. And yet, whenever there comes that time of need, you need a leader. And this was going to be my second point was that uh, whenever you are exploring anarchy philosophically. There comes a time when you have to stop and go, well, somebody needs to get things done. 
And, you know, it's all about, oh, everybody has, you know, their individual responsibility and, you know, each person can make decisions for themselves. But there has to be a balance between that and not having, you know, everybody just kind of wandering around vaguely doing their thing and therefore nothing actually getting accomplished, especially when there's some kind of crisis that needs to be met. Right. Which, and this is just my, you know, personal opinion from having studied anarchy through history is probably why it never really got anywhere because right. you had a lot of people but nobody wanted to step up and take a leadership role and say okay now we're actually going to make this happen because that is contrary to the philosophical concept of you know each individual makes their own decisions however Tolkien has blended it with this fact that sometimes you do need somebody who maybe doesn't want the power and it's best if they don't want the power but perceives a need and has the ability and the leadership qualities to step in and and take the reins and guide things for a little while and then step back and say, okay, right. you know, done, problem right. solved. Right, exactly. And, I mean, this is why the relationship between individual responsibility and leadership there, I mean, it makes me think of the old Roman Republican system, the original concept of where the word dictator comes from. Of course, the word dictator has very negative connotations from the modern perspective, but the word from Latin. It means someone who tells people what to do, right? literally is what that word translates to. And um, the concept was back before the emperors, um, when Rome was a republic, and so you know everything was run by the Senate and everything was run by the people, which is not anarchy, but something which leads to theocracy. And I'm not saying Tolkien would have supported that, but nevertheless, it was you know government by the people. But they recognized government by the whole people is going to be really inefficient. And there are going to be, at a time of crisis, we need somebody to step up. So they had a provision in their laws that said that the Senate could elect a a dictator who would be one person who would have a short term, like a one-year term, only in time of crisis under a special election, who would then be able to be the leader, who would be able to, usually, of course, in times of invasion and things like that. And then when the crisis was over, their powers were stripped from them and they went back to just being a regular citizen. So the Romans, one of the reasons that the Roman system really worked and the Roman Empire worked for a really long time is that they were really good at thinking through things like this. And that system worked really well. And basically it was that system which was exploited by Julius Caesar, um, which is how the emperors came to be. Um, He was, Caesar was made dictator at a time of crisis, but like he didn't step down from being dictator and he, he wanted to be as well, and Calvin would say, supreme dictator for life. And that's, perpetuating that the, crises yeah, yeah. in order to be able to remain dictator. Right, exactly. A classic mm-hmm. move. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, yeah, so uh, that's, that's exactly, um, exactly the need that the Romans recognized, too. Yes. You know, rule of the people by the people sounds really great, but um, you do need a leader also. And I think you can also see a similar kind of I was going to say compromise, but that's just not the right word. Um, coexistence of this sort of anarchy and and monarchy and leadership in the elven cultures, too. Um, we don't see quite as much about how elven culture it's, functions. Yeah. It always seems to be, especially in the books that are told, you know, like The Lord of the Rings and The, Ho- and the Hobbit, sort of from the Hobbit perspective, um, we never get really much insight into how things actually work. No, they just kind of go and look and go, look, there they are, they're very pretty. And, yeah. and, you know. and, and, and beyond our comprehension in yes. some ways. But they clearly have leaders. But you think of Rivendell, right? Elrond is not king, but he commands. But there's not usually commands to be given. I mean, he is the leader. He is looked up, up to and respected. And when there is a time of crisis, 
as there has been when uh, back in the Second Age, when Sauron was invading Eriador um, at the time when, when Moria was shut off and Eregion was destroyed. This was right after the Rings of Power were made. He, Sauron and his army went up and besieged Rivendell. And you know, prior to that, when there were big battles down in Eriador, Elrond led an army out of Rivendell and, and that kind of thing happens. And when that does happen, Elrond serves as a leader, serves like a king serves. But he's not king, and it is not at all clear that the elves of Rivendell are living under what we could call a monarchy. I mean, it's they are kind of doing their own thing, it seems. So I think that, you know, in places like that, too, we can see... Well, in the eternal question of what are the elves doing? What exactly do they do? What do do they get up to all day? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Singing (laughs) and baking things, apparently, and... (laughs) Making things. Making things, yes. Um, you know, so the question is how much governing would need to occur, you know, if, if what you spend your day doing is hanging out and singing. And... <laughs> <laughs> of course, we've, we've tried to make elven society sound deeply frivolous and, uh, and pointless, which it's I think not, is not it's quite just, fair. It's kind of a we don't know. We never right. really get a picture of what a average elven day looks like. and you know, We are given these glimpses. Of Hobbit days, yes. right? Bilbo smoking out on the lawn, right? Sam tending the garden. We get these little flashes of daily life among the Hobbits, yeah. because again, you know, the books are told from a Hobbit perspective, so we yeah. see those things. Well, we farming even, and markets right, and trading, right. and, you know, and in the places in the societies in which they are more integrated, even think of like Minas Tirith. Think of the stories that we get of like Pippin's day and Minas Tirith when he's like walking around and meeting the people on the watch, and they have a picnic on the wall, and and you know talk about things, and he goes down and plays with Burgil, the son of Baragond, and he's down and you know there, there's like a group of boys playing in the street and they're like almost have a wrestling match right? I mean, we, so we see these glimpses of like what daily life looks yeah. like even among humans even among humans so removed from hobbit society as the soldiers of yes. Minas Tirith are well and it's also more familiar in that you know the societies of men are modeled on yeah. societies of men so right. they're doing right. man things they're growing food they're right. doing blacksmith work and Right, Making carts and that sort of thing. Compare that with the time that the Fellowship spends in Lothlorien. Yeah. We never see the elves doing anything. I mean, we never meet the elves. We never see that kind of, like, daily life of the elves. Even though they're there for, what, a month or Yeah, so. they're there for a month, and they almost never even interact with the elves. Legolas goes off among them and brings Gimli sometimes, increasingly at the end. But they almost never see them, and they never see Goadriel and Celeborn. They're, they're guests. They interview them the first time they come, and they come for the farewell feast at the end, but they've never even seen them in the interim. So yeah, it's... And similarly with Tolkien's reservation that he expresses twice, once in The Hobbit and once in The Fellowship of the Ring when they're at Rivendell. I'm not going to describe what happens on a day-to-day basis in Rivendell because it would be boring to talk about. You know, it would be like people sitting around and talking and telling stories and being relaxed and being happy and... Like, telling about people sitting around and being happy is it's not good to listen to, right? Whereas, this is, I'm thinking specifically of the passage in The Hobbit when he talks about the, in the chapter called A Short Rest, or it's right after that chapter. It's, you know, whereas things which are, you know, gruesome and palpitating, you know, <laughs> may make a good story and, and take a deal of telling anyway. But anyway, you know, so despite the fact that we see so comparatively little of elven uh, culture in practice, clearly they also 
have both. That is, anarchy and monarchy. They seem to exist most of the time on a fairly loose and anarchical level, but yet they plainly have leaders and they plainly have affiliations and they they plainly do submit to their rulers. How but, often could we speculate that they are interacting with, with other societies? Like, they're not tr- trading regularly, probably. There probably isn't much that they need to be trading for. They're not in constant conflict, at least at the time of the Lord of the Rings, they're not. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in mm-hmm. earlier ages, there was much right. more of that going on. Right. And in earlier ages, we do see elven kings. Yes, yes. Which was maybe because, I'm trying to tie it back into this, like, why do we need governments and why do some societies have more of a government than others? And it seems to be that, that need for interacting with other groups of people. And, and at the time of the Lord of the Rings, Rivendell's pretty self Contained. Yes. And they have, I mean, they clearly are in contact with and have very cordial relationships with Galadriel over in Lothlorien and with Círdan over mm-hmm. in the Grey Havens. But yeah, there's certainly, we're not talking about diplomacy yeah. here. That's just communication. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, one interesting moment sort of in that light is when Frodo and Mary and Pippin and Sam meet Gildor in the Shire. Mm-hmm. And he identifies himself politically. Well, it's both politically and familiarly. He says, I am Gildor of the House of Finrod. Now, in the Silmarillion, that would have meant I am one of the subjects of King Finrod. Ignoring for a second that he changed the name Finrod, and it would have meant the person later called Fingon, but whatever. that's, That's not the point. The point is, we're talking about actual political allegiances in a time when there was much strife and conflict, even among the elves, against each other. It made a very great difference, for instance, if you were a follower of Thingol versus a follower of the Sons of Feanor, for instance. That was a big, big deal. So not to mention just the fact that you would follow your king in the wars against Morgoth. So on the one hand, so in saying that I am of the House of Finrod at that time would have meant I have these particular allegiances and am opposed to these other people. But when Gilder says it in The Fellowship of the Ring, it's not like that at all. I mean, Finrod is dead whichever one he was, Finrod and Fingon both are dead. Uh, Gilgalad is dead. I mean, the, the elves don't have a high king anymore. And that, I think, is interesting in itself. There was always a high king of the Noldor. was originally Fingolfin when they came over uh, to Middle-earth, and then, because Feanor kind of abdicated, and um, or rather, Mithros abdicates when Feanor dies, um, Fingolfin is the High King. His son Fingon becomes the High King. Turgon becomes the High King for a while. Fingon's younger brother after Fingon dies. And then when Turgon dies and Gondolin falls, Gilgalad, the son of Fingon, becomes becomes High King. And of course, he's still High King during leading up to the Last Alliance when he dies. He's the one who is negotiating with the kings of Numenor, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, Sauron is leading armies and he's going to attack us. We need help. Could, you know, would the Numenorians please come over and help us? You know, he's sending letters to the king of Numenor. But then after the last alliance, it's over. There's no high king. And I don't think it's just because there are no candidates. I mean, if it's true that Gildor is of the House of Finrod, he would be a candidate. I mean, yeah. you know, if he is in some sense, uh, you know, a close descendant of Finway, he could be a candidate. Goodness, Elrond could be in some ways a candidate. He's not, he's, you know, not, not, not the High King of the Noldor exactly, but Galadriel. Hello, Galadriel is the perfect candidate. You yeah, know, she was Feanor's cousin no well she is feanor's niece niece because she is the son of 
So, I mean, she would have been cousins. She was brother of Finrod and would have been the cousin of Fingon. She would have been, let's see, her relationship to Gilgalad would have been first cousin once removed. <laughs> it gets complicated. Yeah. Well, of the same line, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Of the same, and certainly she is the most senior member of the ruling house of the Noldor, who's left in Middle-earth, one of the only surviving ones in her whole generation, one of the only surviving one in her generation. The difference being that there doesn't seem to be as great a need for there to be a high king of the Noldor, because most of them are gone, one, and then two, the ones that are still there are keeping to themselves and keeping mm-hmm. to their own little groups and that sort of thing, and so managing their own affairs. You don't need a high king if you're not out, you know, leading campaigns against Morgoth and not out negotiating treaties with Numenor and that sort of thing. Right, right. Yeah, no, exactly. So, I mean, it, in that sense, in a bigger picture way, I think, the elves have basically almost like they've made a choice, like we're not going to replace Gilgalad as high king, we don't need a high king anymore. So it's almost as if they've made a choice. Like now we're going to be just more anarchical in our in our you know normal everyday life. But but they still have leaders. You know, there's there's still Kirdan, there's still Elrond, there's still Galadriel, there's still Thranduil up in yeah. Mirkwood. You know, they still who, have Mars. who make decisions. And you know, when they decide, do we know who makes the decision to send elves to assist the men in in the fight against? Um, well, let's see. The, well, see, because the, the only way the elves really assist, their main assistance comes in sort of the big picture sense. That is, yeah. they are fighting off the northern armies in Mirkwood, chiefly, and attacking Dol Guldur to take out the northern stronghold. This is sort of in the context of when they're talking about it afterwards, that it's talking about, you know, like, okay, the Battle of Pelennor was cool, but let's not forget that there were other major battles that were being fought by the elves yeah. up in the woods, by the dwarves and men at Dale. You know, that there were these other major encounters that were going on. But there, again, you have leadership. You have, you know, Celeborn, this image that Tolkien gives of Celeborn and Thranduil, basically both attacking Thranduil south and Celeborn north, and the two of them, like, conquering and meeting in the middle and shaking hands, basically, you know. And that's a very, like old school leadership model of, you know, what it what it looks like, what it was like in the really old days, in the elder days, you know, to be an elf and part of the elf kingdoms. Of course, ironically, coming to the end of our time, we've not even really talked about Aragorn, sort of the, the paradigmatic, you know, king leader, but we are sadly Stay out tuned. of time. <laughs> Perhaps later we will talk about Aragorn's kingship. Okay. Don't forget to contact me if you want to be involved in the Silmarillion discussion. I am shooting to start the discussion soon, probably on Wednesday, December 7th, so get in touch with me ASAP. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.